Hello, and welcome to Six Figure Authors, the show that helps you take your writing career to the next level. We're sharing our own insights as authors who've been publishing since the beginning of the e-reader revolution, and we're also interviewing industry experts and other successful authors to help you figure out what's working right now. I'm Lindsay Baroker, and I'm here with my two co-hosts. I'm Joe Lalo. And I'm Andrea Pearson. And today we're going to continue uh, interviewing each other uh, as we've been doing the last couple of shows. We're going to be digging a little deeper with Joe Lalo today, talking a little bit about him. And we're also going to be asking him some tips for diversifying his income or diversifying your income in general as an author and uh, making more money so that uh, all your eggs aren't in one basket. And Joe's been wide pretty much since the beginning. So think he can give us some good insight and he's also doing patreon and a few other things joe i guess we'll uh, we'll just start it out what did you do before you became a full-time author and um what kind of gave you your first hint of success well okay so before i was a full-time author i went to college at njit new jersey institute of technology uh to be a computer engineer and i got a master's degree in computer engineering uh and then straight out of college in fact while i was getting my master's I got a job working at Horizon. Okay, this is this is the string. At Horizon Blue Cross Blue Shield for IBM via Infinite Computer Solutions. So I was a subcontractor for IBM working at Horizon Blue Cross Blue Shield. That kind of job. Uh, it was IT. I was supporting uh, uh, the interactive voice response system. So the, the the machine that answers the phone when you call. My I job. actually didn't know this about you. We've never asked this question before <laughs> on the old show. I mean, I knew you were like a computer engineer guy, but all right, carry on, carry yeah, on. My, my <laughs> job was uh, doing statistics on how people use the system so that we can figure out how to get more people to use the system. It, it was very interesting. Uh, I did that for nine years, uh, and then they offered me a $15,000 raise in exchange for becoming a salaried employee, which meant unlimited unpaid overtime. And I would be taking the place of my supervisor without a replacement for my own position. So I would be doing two jobs for that. Uh, and while that realistically was a decent job to have, I knew that I would go insane if I did it. And more importantly, I wouldn't have any time to write. And by the time they made that offer, I was making more money from the books than I was even with the uh, raise they were offering me. So that's when I decided to go uh, full time. But so several years before that, obviously, is when I got my first taste of success if I was already out earning the day job. Uh, I had published in 2010, January 2010. In May of 2011, I made The Book of Deacon, the first book in the Book of Deacon trilogy, which has now got five books. So the Book of Deacon saga. Uh, I made it free, uh, perma-free, because I think Brian S. Pratt, I think it was, was the person who I had heard did it. So I did that too. And I got picked up by a, a blog called Pixel of Ink, which back then um, you could make affiliate money off of links to free books. So there was an entire industry based around finding free books to share. So Pixel of Ink was a big name in that. And I got a ton of downloads and it got me up in the ranks. Back then also free books were side by side with paid books on the top list. So if you were at the top of the, of the free list, you were showing up on the same page as someone like Stephen King. Uh, so I made a couple of thousand dollars and I turned that couple of thousand dollars into a couple of covers and, uh, I just started cranking out books a little bit faster and paying more attention to my quality. And it sort of built slowly from there. That first $3,000 took another like five months before I was making that much money again. But then a year after that, I was making six figures. That's sort of how things went. All right. So, okay. So for those who don't know you, um, how long have you been writing? So was, was it something you'd been doing your whole entire life since you were a kid? And when and why? Well, you already just answered when, but why did you decide to self-publish? All right. Um, I started writing like very, very young. I mean, if I want to go into like full anecdotes, when I was in kindergarten, we had to write a story. We didn't know how to write. Like there was no words. So we had to come up with a story and the teacher would write it for us. And she edited me. She, uh, she, she was, I, I used a phrase caught the side of like, Oh, the sun caught the side of, of, of the cloud. And she was like, saw the sun saw the cloud. And I'm like, don't edit me. But yeah, so I was doing it since then. But I, the story that eventually became the book of Deacon, I started writing in like second grade. Uh, and then I rewrote it and I re rewrote it. Uh, and then by high school, it was starting to look like what would eventually become the finished product. And then by college, it was, I started working on the finished product, 
not that I had ever intended to publish it because I was afraid of being judged and just basically I was ashamed. I was ashamed of the idea that I might have written a book. So it was a secret to everyone but my closest friends. And then eventually I came clean to my closest friends like, hey, remember that thing I was writing in, in grammar school? It's finished. And they said, well, you should try to get it published. And this was traditionally published. So then I tried to get an agent and I was judged and rejected of several dozen times. And I was like, I don't like this. And they said, well, then try self-publishing. I said, okay. So it was never my idea. My friends pushed me into both of those things. Good for your friends. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. I've, I've thanked them many, many times. They are in the acknowledgments of almost every one of my books. Have you killed them off too? In any of your books? <laughs> no, no. Uh, have I? No. There are characters based on both of them. Uh, one of them, no, they're, they're both still alive. Although one of them is, is not terribly admirable as a character. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> all right. Now that you've been in the industry for eight, nine years, uh, as we all have, we've all kind of seen a lot of people hit it really big. And, and some of them went on to traditionally publish. Some of them went on to, uh, or just have continued to successfully self-publish. But we've also seen a lot of people disappear. Um, it's, it's definitely been a challenge to kind of keep things rolling. Uh, what are... How, what are your thoughts on how things have been going, uh, you know, last nine years? And uh, is there anything you're struggling with, uh, as we all are? Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, the, I, what, I've, what I've learned mostly in this time, like, that I've been doing this is I've learned about myself, how to streamline and expedite my own process. Like, I've seen a lot of people not really grow. Uh, like, craft is one thing, but... Like if once you've written your first book, first book, again, if I started in the second grade and published in college, you can do math on figuring out how long it took me to get. So uh, I, I've learned to like, you, you need to get a process down and you need to keep at it. I've learned the consistency is important. Um, I've learned that like for me, outlining and setting word quotas and stuff was important to really get a book out quickly that makes sense and doesn't need a lot of revision. Uh, I, I got pretty good at formatting ebooks and stuff. So basically, I learned sort of how to make a business and a procedure out of everything and that it's necessary to do so. What I'm struggling with right now is a lot. Right now, I'm struggling an awful lot. I'm in the midst of probably my biggest slump in sales since I went pro. Uh, and it's mostly because my old tactics had been too successful for too long. The keystone of my old tactics were... I had three perma-free uh, series starters, and I would, funnel book, I would funnel readers back to them every time I released a new book, which was about once a year in each of those series. And it kept me pretty steady at almost exactly $100,000 in earnings uh, on, on those series um, for several years, and I got comfortable with it. And I would, you know, I, obviously, we were, doing, we were doing our own podcast, and I was keeping up on different trends and stuff, but I wasn't really dedicating myself to, to adapting because I didn't need to. I, I, my, my sales were strong. And then about two years ago, I mean, over that time, perma-free was steadily eroding as a technique. And uh, I, was, I was doing pretty well because, as we're going to talk about, I was diversified. So every time it slumped here, I, I had another you know, hose fill in the bucket. But about two years ago, I saw the writing on the wall, and I decided to start doing some serious uh, restructuring and sort of adapt to some of the new techniques. So we're going to talk a lot, I'm sure, uh, in the future about like, how a rapid release and I've never really done a lot of uh, dedicated advertising. So I started working on all that and that's what I'm struggling with right now. I've essentially had to completely develop a new publishing strategy and it, you know, you don't do it perfectly the first time. I'm very well educated in the area, but very novice at actually ex executing it. So right now I'm just getting my feet wet in KU and I'm just getting, you know, the process down for rapid release because I've never done that before. I'm just starting to look very seriously into having sort of maintenance advertising always going. And it's not easy. And until I get good at it, I'm going to be looking at some, uh, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to be looking at income. That's not what I was accustomed to. So uh, I guess the short answer is things have been getting harder and adaptation is important. <laughs> Yeah, I, I feel like everybody kind of feels that out there that, you know, unless they're just starting now and they don't have any preconceived notions or expectations that, but you're, you're hearing from a lot of people like, well, you kind of have to advertise now. It used to be like, like you were saying, if you made the first one free, I miss the good old days too. Although your books always did better than mine because you had better covers. Uh, I remember the book of Deacon was like always in that top 100 free epic fantasy list near the top. 
it stuck there for a long time. I like, I got, uh, yeah, I got, I got over overly comfortable with that. Are you finding that the perma free is still working on the other sites or have things tailed off over there too? I mean, cause I found that they have tailed off, but I also haven't been, I've been doing KU for new releases. So kind of neglecting the other sites other than occasional promos. Yeah. Promo free has gotten weaker across the board. I, I don't keep like day to day, uh, 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 tabs on how, my wide stuff is doing but just you know when i do my sort of end of month and end of year wrap-ups the the perma free is way way down across the board it's still useful and it's still primarily the you know until i get better at the new stuff it's still primarily where my money is coming from but it's definitely just gotten less powerful across the board uh okay so what sorts of things have you done to get better as a writer other than writing more practicing um have you taken any classes or any courses on it I haven't done a tremendous amount in terms of like craft uh, education for my craft. I, I, uh, for a long time early in my career, I stopped reading other people's books because I was, I stopped reading other fiction because I was afraid that I was going to inadvertently adapt to their style. I have a tendency, like if I listen to uh, a certain type of dialogue in a movie or something, I find myself writing something, absorbing that and i was afraid that i was going to basically just start accidentally plagiarizing this is a very stupid thing to do uh reading is extremely important Wait, plagiarizing, is, plagiarizing stupid or... is stupid but also being afraid <laughs> that simply reading somebody else's work will cause you to plagiarize is stupid yeah. so one of the things that i've been doing recently is getting back into reading fiction far more regularly so i can sort of uh you know increase the creative fuel in my brain but uh i also I have really started to take beta reading more seriously. There was a time when beta reading was just, I would say to my friends, hey, listen, would you like to read the book? It's finished now. Or I would say to a circle of my readers, hey, would you like to read the book? It's finished now. And I might only get one or two people who actually read it. And I would go through their stuff and I would discuss it with them and I'd be done. Nowadays, I, uh, I, I pay a couple beta readers now. Uh, people who are not just friends or avid readers, but who don't have a dog in the game, whether or not I, I like them after they talk to me, you know? So people who, who, who take it very seriously, also still my friends, also still my, uh, my fans, but I like, I pay, I've done some developmental editing and also the editors that I work with now typically give me a pretty, I've been lucky enough that the editors I work with tend to enjoy what I write and therefore they tend to have an opinion about what I write. So I, uh, I get a little bit more editorial, um, just assessment, on my stuff and I take it a lot more seriously now. There was a time when I would, I would ask a beta reader for information and then if they gave me a plot point they didn't like, I didn't particularly care if they didn't like that plot point. That's what happened. Uh, and I would just uh, adjust the things that were like plot holes. But nowadays I'm just sort of, I, I try to take a lot more of the ego out and when other people give me feedback, I try to assess it on artistic level, not on a personal level. So treat it more like a, a work of art and less an expression of myself. Although those are supposed to be the same thing, I guess. So you've gotten more humble over the years and I've gotten more prideful. <laughs> uh, I guess. In the beginning I was like, I, I used a hundred or almost, almost 200 beta readers for one of my books and having so many hands in the pie because I was insecure about my writing. Um, having so many hands in the pie made it harder to catch my own style. And so I don't actually use any beta readers now. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so, there's a thousand different avenues to this stuff. All right. Well, why don't we kind of move into talking about diversifying income now and uh, maybe how people can find some extra sources if they're looking for that. What would you say, you know, there's like eBooks, audiobooks, print, foreign rights, uh, you know, all sorts of things we can be doing. What are some of your major sources of income now and have been in the past? Um, well, not surprisingly, uh, eBooks are at the top of the heap by a huge margin. Um, I am wide with almost all of my books and I have about 50, 50, 50 split on income from Amazon and wide. And that's partially because I've been wide since the beginning and I've dedicated a fair amount of effort to, in the past to maintaining sales on non Amazon. I've done a lot of Kobo and a lot of, uh, uh Apple promotional stuff. Um, even with recent KU stuff that really hasn't changed the spread again, cause it's, I'm new to the rapid release and the KU. So I haven't had it explode on me, so it hasn't changed the balance very much. Uh, aside from eBooks, believe it or not, foreign rights right now is my second biggest earner, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But it it has 
uh, a, had a surprising effect on, on my, uh, my bottom line for the past almost three years. Uh, past that, audiobooks are, are, have been picking up for me. Most of my stuff is traditional for audiobooks. So I had uh, advances that had to get earned back, but I just, it's somewhere over in the pile next to me. I just got my first royalty statement that four or five of my books have not earned back their advance, and I'm starting to get regular payments on those. So I'm starting to see, you know, actual numbers as opposed to nothing. <laughs> and uh, uh, I have a couple of my own self-produced uh, things as well. Uh, and then there's a lot of, I, I, unsurprisingly large amount of my income is one-off stuff like uh, Story Bundle. Or uh, on every now and then I've been, I've, I've been a paid contributor to uh, anthologies and stuff. And that, you know, it tends not to be a huge chunk of my annual income, but on a given month when I actually get paid for that, it's, uh, it tends to be nice. And Patreon is sort of in the mix now too. I got, I got, there's other things beyond that that are peppered in and out, but the, the stuff below Patreon, we're talking, you know, $20 a month in total. All right. Okay. So what portion of your income comes from the above? You actually kind of already answered that. Um, but do you feel like using all of these things um, is important? And, or if you had to do it all over again, is there a different focus that you would have taken? Um, I guess if I had to break it down to like percentages, probably 85% of my stuff comes from my earnings come from eBooks across the both Amazon and wide. Uh, probably another 10% comes from audio and foreign rights combined. And the rest is, you know, print bundles and all that. It's probably 5%. You know, that, that, that makes 100. Um, I feel like if it's a do it once, sell it forever sort of thing, it's usually worth the effort, even if it doesn't make a lot of money right away. Uh, I mean, if you can spend two hours making something into a paperback, and then the paperback is going to make you a couple of dollars a month forever, uh, that's worth doing. Even if, you know, even, if, even if you don't see a huge income from it right away, uh, especially paperbacks and stuff. Having at least one physical thing, I think, is definitely important because ebooks aren't usually given as gifts, and physical items often are. So, it, back when I was doing particularly well with uh, the Book of Deacon trilogy, when they were still relatively new, uh, I might only make twenty or twenty-five dollars worth of print sales a month. Uh, but then, when Christmas came, I was making three or four hundred dollars a month for Jan for, for November and December. So. I mean, again, for something that took, you know, an hour and a half to do, that's absolutely worth it. And it happens every year. So it's worth doing. Uh, the stuff that's more one-off, like the bundles, for example, a bundle is a lot of work and it pays off exactly once. So you have to sort of pay attention and calibrate the amount of work you do versus the amount of benefit you get. And it's not all the money. I mean, a bundle also gets your name out and all that stuff. And that's another thing you need to keep in mind. Sometimes the stuff that doesn't make you money does get you, you know, interaction and does do networking. So again, I guess the short answer is, uh, if it's one, and if it's scalable income, you know, do oneself forever, it's almost always worth doing. Uh, and if it's, if it's, oh, and then actually there's a third thing in that list, which is stuff that is do it once, sell it forever, but costs a lot of money. And that is self-producing audiobooks, for example. Uh, worth doing if you have the money to spend. But uh, uh, if you don't, probably let it wait, I would say, or find a way to do it more cheaply. But overall, that's where it stands. For your eBooks, I know that, like me, you were at Smashwords because they were the only <laughs> distributor in the game back in like 2010. Um, now there's Drafted Digital, and I think Publish Drive 2 is getting more popular. Uh, for those that might be out there wondering if they should just use a distributor to get into the other non-Amazon stores or if it's worth making accounts everywhere that has a self-publishing platform, what do you do? Um, do you upload everywhere individually or do you just use Smashwords? And what are your thoughts on that? Um, I think, well, what I do is I, uh, I use Smashwords. Well, I use Amazon directly. Uh, as I think everyone should. In fact, I think everyone has to. Uh, I do Google directly and everything else is, is smash words. If you were a very, very dedicated business person uh, and you, you want to really uh, get the maximum output to the minimum input, you probably will make more money and have more flexibility for promotions and stuff if you uh, do everything directly. Uh, I am not that dedicated. Uh, to, to actually like absolutely maximizing, we're talking a few percent difference in many cases. Uh, 
So uh, I trade off of that, that little bit of control and that little bit of income for a lot of uh, convenience. So I usually recommend doing things the way I do if, you can, if, if you're comfortable. And that is because having a distributor streamlines a lot of stuff. Uh, new releases go way faster because you only have to upload to a couple of places as opposed to potentially you know, eight or nine. You only have, I only have to do three. Same, likewise for updates. Just to give um, a perspective of a full-time mom, um, I, had, I started paying my assistant to upload for me and I found that her fee was about the same as what I would have paid Smashwords, but Smashwords I have a merchandiser at. And so I think that, I mean, if you have like two hours a day, are you going to spend it uploading to different retailers? Or are you going to spend it writing something else and have and pay somebody to do something? Or are you going to use a distributor? So that's something that authors are going to have to ask themselves, you know, which, where would they want to put their focus and all that? Yeah, if you are the kind of person, and this really does come down to the amount of output you have. If you're the kind of person who can put a real genuine value on two or three hours of your time a month, uh, then you should be either using a distributor or hiring someone. And hiring something is the, uh, someone is the other way. Uh, if, you, if you can afford to and justify hiring someone because the handful of hours that you would have spent doing it yourself is too much, uh, absolutely do it. Because first off, having the direct, I mean, having a direct account in a lot of cases is going to allow you to make a little bit more money. Uh, it's often going to allow you to use their uh, uh, promotional tools far more directly. For a long time, that was the case with Kobo. Uh, you had to, to, to go through Kobo's platform in order to be part of their, uh, uh, most of their promos. If you happen to be in good with Smashwords, and uh, often Smashwords will sort of pass you through to Kobo like that, but yeah, if you can really, if you genuinely know, I can get a non-trivial amount of work done in two hours that in the long run will make me a lot more money uh, than either use this, the, uh, the distributors or hire somebody. To uh, chime in with a third perspective, <laughs> I upload everywhere I can and I do it myself. I don't trust other people with my account information, so there's just no way that would ever be passed off. But honestly, a new book, it takes less than an hour to get it up on all the sites. I do Apple myself, Kobo myself, Google Play myself, and Barnes & Noble myself. And then I use Smashwords because there's still stores you can't get into. And we should point out, even though we may all be with Smashwords because we started and that's who it was, <laughs> that was the only game in town, a lot of people really like draft to digital and the guys that work there are really good and they go to a lot of the conferences and stuff. So I would actually probably recommend them uh, just because it's more, e I think it's going to be easier to make connections there if you're newer. Um, but and their website's friendlier, honestly, than Smashwords is. They do. They, ha they have a lot of author features, yeah. too. They have that we mentioned using bookstoread.com to make reader links, and that's actually owned by Drafted Digital, and they just put it out there. I use it even though I don't use them. And it's, it's not that I haven't thought about it, but it, you know, then you're splitting your catalog in half, and you're like, half a series is up with this distributor, and it's not going to get linked if it goes out to the sites, and it's up, you know, up books five, seven, five through seven or with another distributor. So just some differing perspectives there. Yeah. I, I also, uh, I'm with Smashwords. I will continue to be with Smashwords and I like Smashwords, but I very freely recommend draft to digital uh, for people who are just getting started. Also, I should say another thing that weighs in on my decision to use a distributor versus going direct is uh, it simplifies record keeping a little bit. Like instead of getting payments from a thousand different places and getting a thousand different 1099s, you get a much more streamlined, uh, uh, you know, information. Sometimes that information is very delayed, but uh, it, it still comes from only three places instead of eight places. Uh, and if that's important to you, then it's another reason to use a distributor. That's a really good point, actually. <laughs> um, how often do you try new ways to make money? So if you hear something that sounds really cool, really exciting, do you jump onto it quickly, or do you tend to wait to see if it'll last or pan out? Uh, it depends. Uh, I experiment pretty frequently. Uh, often very goofy things I do, but uh, every, at least every few months, I'll test the waters in some kind of weird merchandise or wacky side project. Uh, most of them never even see the light of day. Uh, I'll get started on it and see how useful it looks like it'll be, and maybe even actually get a product, but then never do anything with that product because I realize once I have it that maybe distributing it is too difficult and it's better just as a giveaway. Or maybe uh, I'll decide that there's 
in order to uh, make this a going concern, it would take way too much work to continue doing it. So I don't want to set the expectations that I will continue doing it. But I, you know, whether it's doing web comics or making, you know, I have, uh, if you're watching the video, I have uh, figurines that you can buy and I have uh, 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 coins that you can, you can get. Uh, don't ask me how you're supposed to get them because I haven't set up a storefront yet. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, although you can get the, you can get the figurines on, on Shapeways. But um, basically, uh, if it's something that's super easy, um, uh, if it's something that's super easy that like I'm already in place for, I jump on it immediately. Like there was, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about Find Away Voices at one point, which is a, a competitor to ACX. I had a couple of things I could put on there and I found out that they were there. So within a week I was on there because why wouldn't I be? Um, but if it's something like, you know, if it's, if it's, um, if it's a store that would require exclusivity, I'm going to be very, very careful about getting on there. I'm going to really weigh the, the thing. So if it's low impact uh, or low effort, I get on it right away. If it's something that requires a lot more dedication and ongoing uh, attention like Patreon, uh, I, I take my time and, and see really if, if I have any use for it or if I have, uh, uh, if it's applicable to my business model. Yeah, I didn't start a Patreon account until this year. And it's one of those things, these people that are supporting me on Patreon would have supported me eight years ago <laughs> or whenever Patreon came out. And so I kind of regret not doing it a lot earlier, you know. Um, have you tried any print formats other than the standard paperback? So like large print, hardback, mass paperback, um, any of that kind of stuff? Uh, traditionally, I haven't, but, uh, and I had like behind the scenes, I had to walk away and get this after we started. Uh, hardcover is coming. Um, somebody, uh, one, of my, one of my fans, the 10th anniversary for, for the Book of Deacon is coming up. And one of my fans is like, you don't have any hardcovers. And you're the only one of my favorite authors who I don't have any hardcovers on my shelf for. And I'd really want hardcovers. And I had, I had you know, uh, stayed off of hardcovers for the longest time because uh, they would cost a lot more. And I, self-esteem is often a problem in, uh, in, in the authors, or just authors in general. I really didn't think I had enough people out there who would pay the price for a hardcover to make it worth doing a hardcover. And when I first got started, uh, hardcovers were a giant pain to do print on demand. And you sort of had, so you had to do a print run. Nowadays, you know, print on demand looks roughly like this for people watching the video. And it's still way more expensive to the consumer and therefore to me if I was to be selling them directly. But uh, no inventory and do it once, sell it forever. So it was, a, it, you know, it fit my criteria for giving it a try. It's, I'm not done yet because there's a couple of uh, art things I need to do because it's a, it's a 10th anniversary edition. So I'm going to try to enhance it. But uh, yeah, so I'm dabbling in that. And I think what it's probably going to end up being is just another entry on my you know, Amazon page and another way that people can... can another option people have. Uh, but again, it's another tiny hose going into a tub that hopefully will keep it full. Where do you get your hardcovers done? This is from Ingram Spark. Um, it's actually surprisingly easy to adapt a regular book to a hardcover. If you have done paperback, the way I do uh, print, in case anyone's wondering, I owe both KDP print and Ingram Spark. I do KDP print without extended catalog so I can keep the price low. And then I do Ingram Spark for everything that would have been in the extended catalog for KDP print. But if you do Ingram Spark, you can use, I think, an identical content file. Like if you do a six, this is a six by nine, which is what I do my, my standard paperbacks in. Uh, I think you can use exactly the same file and just get another uh, uh, ISBN and uh, you'll, need, you'll need a new cover, which is one of the art things I needed to do. But you know, the, if, you, if you're friendly with your cover designer, then you're, the, adapting a paperback cover to a hard cover is just adding bleed around the edge and flaps around the inside. And it's, I think it cost me $25 to get a new cover. So that should pay for itself pretty quick. That was $25 from your cover designer? Yes. Okay. Uh, technically, it also costs a setup fee on Ingram Spark to do any book, but there are ways around that. If you are, for example, in uh, Novelist Incorporated, then you can get free setup on your Ingram Spark files. And I'm sure there's a dozen other similar deals with other people. Now, I don't remember, I don't know if you remember from when we were at the WMG Business Masterclass a couple years ago, but that year and then last year again, they talked about um, mass market style paperbacks and large print and how they're both pretty popular right now. 
Um, at least they were, you know, back then. I don't know if this year that's the same, but do you think you'll ever try those out? Um, large print, I, you know, I, I could foresee doing both of them. I don't, I mean, again, it is seriously, if you've ever formatted a, a paperback, especially if you have vellum, which I don't, but uh, if you ever format a, a paperback, it's very, very simple. It, it really boils down to once you've got the, the margins and stuff in place, you're changing six or seven numbers to get a new format. So I don't see uh, uh, any reason why I wouldn't do it, uh, especially large print, except I would probably only do my shorter books in large print because believe it or not, because of the length of books I write, some of the stuff I wanted to have in paperback, I can't because it's too much. Uh, I had the Book of Deacon anthology is too many pages to make into a six by nine paperback. Believe it uh, or not, those six hundred thousand word books—they're just. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they uh, they really add up. It turns out. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah, but yeah, I, I don't see why I wouldn't do it. I'm not. I understand. Like, it gets tricky with mass market paperbacks because the size—all it, it is—is is a slightly smaller size, and. Uh, it will get distributed differently. Other different stores carry these things, but it's really like inside baseball to understand the actual value of doing a mass market paperback. So of the two, probably large print is the one I do. I do preferentially. Yeah. Back in the day, they, the mass market used to be on different type of paper and different type of book covers and things like that. They were way cheaper, but now, I mean, Amazon doesn't even have a, at least I, from last I checked, they don't even have a, an option to check that it is the mass market. Paperback. I actually haven't done any hardbacks or played with that at all yet. Um, I'll be curious if any of you guys do the large print, uh, if it actually, if you sell enough for it to be worth the effort. I know uh, Joanna's talked about it on the creative pen and uh, she seems to be a fan. I suppose it's something that if my current cover designers happen to say, hey, we're adding this for $25 extra or something, I'd be like, oh, okay, you know, let's give it a try. Uh, I do think there's some value in having a more expensive version of your book on your Amazon sales page. That's why I like doing the audiobooks and the print books. And then, oh, the ebook's only $4.99. It looks like a great deal. Whereas if the ebook is the only thing there and it's $4.99, you might be thinking, well, there's other 99 cent ebooks. You know, maybe I'll <laughs> try that. Um, but we talked a little bit about Patreon there. What has been your experience with that and crowdfunding, if you've done any other kinds of it? It's always, I know it's kind of a wrestle thing to wrestle with are you going to make enough for it to be worth doing extra content i actually have a patreon and i just use it to as i mentioned uh kind of sell the advanced copies before they go into kindle or kdp select and become exclusive with amazon and i, I rarely do anything specifically for the patreon folks as far as writing new content but i think you do short stories I do. Um, my primary, uh, I technically started the Patreon in expectation of doing the same thing you're doing, using it as a way to pre-sell the stuff that will be Amazon exclusive to people who don't want to buy it on Amazon. But I also, like, I'm, I have a thing, again, this will be the first time mentioning it, I suppose, on, on this podcast. I have a, a thing called a bad idea file. Occasionally, I'll get an idea in my head, which is distracting. Uh, and I can't get it out of my head without writing it. So I will take, say, a weekend sometimes, a day that I would normally not get any writing done, or maybe when I'm in between, between projects, and I'll just sort of write a premise or a couple of thousand words of, a, of an idea just to get it out of my head. Bad idea so file, decided, those poor ideas. The bad idea file. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, like, okay, well, again, sometimes they become novels, but uh, generally speaking, I have a very, very large, like at this point, over 100,000 words uh, of just stuff I wrote that I knew I wouldn't be able to sell. Now your pizza, um, pizza oven dragon, is that one yeah. of them? <laughs> that came out of the bad idea file. That started awesome. off as, uh, that started off as a, as the artist who created that concept. I really liked the art they were doing and I thought the concept was neat. So I asked permission to write a chapter, a single chapter, uh, just to say, Oh, this will be an interesting thing. And I did. And people that I shared it with liked it. So I wrote another chapter and by the time I have two chapters, well, that's, you know, a third of the way to a book as far as my brain is concerned. <laughs> so I took the extra three weeks and turned it into a book. But so basically Patreon is that. Patreon was a way to take those ideas I had and give a couple of hours more work to each one and then give them away uh, to people who support me at different levels. Uh, and I like it. I like Patreon. I'd like to do more with it. I haven't genuinely, I've had at no point have I really pushed it as a product. Uh, I let people know about it, about it periodically, but I've never made a cons concerted effort to drive people to it because uh, I feel like if I wanted to make that a giant part of my career, 
the pressure to do content on a far more regular basis would be too much and I would start losing focus on my writing. But uh, uh, I really like Patreon as a way to, to give away stuff that's too short to sell individually. Uh, and to just... I also crave feedback a lot more than many other authors do. Like, as I say, I'm afraid to be judged. I also very much like to, you know, uh, hear what people think of my stuff if they like it. So having a regular output, it was a way for me to keep my fans engaged in between book releases. And I thought I think it's very useful for that too. Um, but yeah, that's basically my only major uh, experience with, with this kind of crowdfunding. Uh, and I'm hoping to expand it in the future. We should point out too that there are some authors, uh, especially a lot of traditionally published authors, or I would say a couple I know of, that they may be kind of hampered with how fast they can produce. And so maybe they can only put out one book a year with their publisher. And there's a couple on Patreon that are making like five to 10,000 extra a month by doing some extra short stories. And you know, I think that's a, another scenario where it can be really good because they're like, <laughs> they're mid size or mid list authors basically, but they have a pretty big fan base built up. It's just that they get so much less <laughs> income from the actual books, a smaller percentage that uh, that five or 10,000 a month over there could be amazing. Uh, I do find with indie authors, when you get to the point where you can make thousands, you're probably making so much from your books that then it, you kind of have to weigh like, is it worth the time? But it sounds like it's something you enjoy and, and that's really cool. Yeah. Plus um, it sort of gives you a separate tier of fan. Like, you know, you've got however many hundreds of people will buy your books and, or thousands of people will buy your books and how many hundreds maybe will interact with you and your various things. But then you have the tier who are willing to pay you every month and you can sort of reward them and sort of use them as a focus group. Uh, uh, and that's, that's useful too. That is true. You have the people that are willing to pay a little more probably than the, just the, there's the Amazon people or whoever will pay full price for a book. And then there's the people who only buy the 99 cent stuff or only read your stuff with their KU subscription. And I'm, I'm happy to have readers from all over, but yeah, I, I do find that the people who pay more tend to be less, I don't know, less demanding in general. There's a lot of like, you get emails from people in KU that are really disgruntled that all of your stuff isn't in KU. And I'm like, well, is it okay if I charge full price for some of it? I mean, is that okay? <laughs> you know? So it, it is, yeah, it kind of shows you, gives you a list of people who are like, yeah, these are um, folks that are willing to pay full price and maybe even support you for a, a little extra. That's a really good point. Lindsay, you have a $25 level tier on your Patreon, don't you? I do. And I was surprised there's only like four or five people that do it, but I was like, why? I even say it on there. I'm like, don't, don't subscribe at this level. I'm like, just if you, cause sometimes people will say like, Oh, can I give you a tip or something? You know, I'm like, well, if you want to, but uh, there are some people that yeah, have been paying that for every book and I'm amazed and I've, I've sent some paperbacks and stuff you feel like I got to give these guys something extra. And I, for people that pay more than $5, I usually throw in like bonus books from, cause of my catalogs big enough now that I have all sorts of random stuff. The Goblin Brothers Adventures, <laughs> the first short stories that I published, you know, and then my pen name stuff too. So I'll, I'll give them extras. And I usually give the higher paying folks uh, audiobooks too, when I produce them myself and actually have the files. Um, Joe, have you done a Kickstarter? That, that's another one I know a lot of people wonder about it and try out. Uh, I haven't done a... Uh, I personally haven't done a Kickstarter, although uh, for the paperback, uh, again, I, want, I said I wanted... Uh, sorry, the hardcover. Uh, I said I wanted to do an enhanced edition. I'm thinking of doing one of those Kickstarters where it's really more about the stretch goals, where it's like, whatever, my, I'll have a ridiculously low goal, but then it's like, if you want there to be you know, chapter illustrations per chapter, and then, you know, we'll hit this level. Uh, but I have been a part of successful Kickstarters. There's two anthologies I was in, one of which was a Stabby Award winner. So if, uh, if I wanted to be very vague, I could just call myself an award-winning artist. I won 1 30th of a Stabby. Uh, and they were, those were, like I mentioned earlier, like paid anthologies. Those were two paid anthologies I was in. It was Neverland's, uh, yeah, Neverland's Library was the first one. And the other one, it now has a different name. It was called Blackguards at the time. I forget what it's called now. They had to reach... They, it was a whole thing. Originally, it was called Rogues, and then George R. R. Martin released a, an anthology called Rogues. So they changed it to Blackguards, and now it's got a third name. But uh, those were successful. Uh, and uh, 
first off, I wouldn't have been paid for those short stories if they weren't successful. So I definitely am happy they happened. But also, those have been some of the, the titles I've done that sort of had the biggest um, outside my fan base uh, distribution. So I found them to be pretty darn useful, which is partly why I want to try doing one of my own one of these days. I actually did a Kickstarter early on in my career I, as an author. I think it was about 2012. At that point, I was making some money. I think I had maybe four novels out in my Emperor's Ed series, but I wasn't yet making piles of money. And I wanted to do the audiobooks for the series. And I was looking at you know about 3000 each. So this is kind of before ACX and, and making, making things a little easier to find narrators and all that. So, um, but I did find a little production company that was willing to take it on. And I was like, well, let me see if I can get the money from the readers that they might want the audiobook files. And so it was successful. I think I asked for maybe 3000 and got like 5,000 or something like that. Um, so that can be an option. If you have a little bit of a fan base, you're getting started and you do have some readers that would maybe support a project. I do think it's tough if you're just starting out, I've seen authors try to finance the production of their first ebook in paperback and try to get like a thousand or twelve hundred dollars for that, which is uh, understandable because that that'll be the cost of the editing easily, you know. But it, I, I usually say them not get any backers because they don't have a fan base yet. So it is, you know, one of those things like once you're again, once you're kind of a midless author, you can you know, use that to uh, do some successful projects. And and mine was pretty small there, just doing the audiobooks. And I think I spent as much time on ordering paperbacks and, you know, hand signing all the paperbacks with individual messages because those were the gifts or whatever I gave away. Um, so that was a lot of time. But I like Michael Sullivan is someone we had on the old show. He's a fantasy author that started out as a indie and went traditional. And now he's kind of a mix of both. But if you go look him up on Kickstarter, he's had some really successful ones. I think he's done three or four. And I think he made like at least 80,000 on one. So not too shabby at all. But um, go ahead, Andrea, let's move on to artwork. I know you wanted to, Joe's big on that and likes to talk on about that and I know nothing about it. So take over. <laughs> okay. So Joe, um, I know from listening to the science fiction fantasy marketing podcast that uh, you use commission artwork a lot. Um, have you tried monetizing that in any way? So like using it as a download incentive or reader reward? Um, basically, do you think that commission artwork has helped your bottom line in any way? Um, maybe by keeping fans interested in the series or something like that? Uh, yeah, I mean, even if it wasn't going to help my bottom line, I would definitely still get uh, commission artwork because I like commissioned artwork. At some point... Um, uh, well, this, this, again, if you're watching the video behind me, there is a cabinet. The entire purpose of that cabinet is to be filled with all the cool stuff that I've commissioned over the years. But I have toyed with monetizing this stuff a lot. Earlier, I held up a figurine. That was a result of one of the things I'll commission is figurines of my characters because they're cool. And I'll show them off. And that's the primary use that I get out of artwork is that we show off art and it gets people talking. So if I have a, a thing that I want to talk about, uh, online that I, you know, may, I want to talk about a character or just make a post on a Facebook page because I haven't done so in a while. It gets a much bigger response if it's got some artwork work associated with. And there's lots of people who use just stock art for that sort of thing, but I have an enormous uh, reservoir of commissioned artwork that I can use. So it's very, very useful for that. But there were enough people who were super interested in the figurines that I had uh, digital files made. And you can buy those figurines. Uh, on Shapeways. Hasn't been a huge income, but it was a way that I could monetize. I've also in the past thought about, I probably still will one of these days, uh, doing an art book. Uh, the issue there is rights, and the issue with all of this is rights. Just because you commissioned a piece of artwork doesn't mean you're allowed to sell it. It depends upon what the artist, you know, what, your, what agreement you have with the artist. Plenty of artists would be like, no, yeah, as far as I'm concerned, if you commission from me, the artwork is yours. Some of them will be like, uh, you know, just just uh, give me credit. Some people will say you can sell it as is, but you can't modify it in any way. And sometimes it gets sliced up so, that, oh, this can be a book cover and a promotional item, but you can't sell it as, say, a poster or a t-shirt. So all that stuff you need to you know, think about and, and, and settle with your artist. Uh, but once you do, I have t-shirts that are based either directly or indirectly on art that I've had done. Uh, again, I don't really push them at all, but it's a way to monetize the stuff. And uh, I have also, you, you talk about download incentives uh, early on, and it was one of the more successful things at the time. I had a very nice 
uh, like desktop background size and phone background size. They had all sorts of different formats. Uh, sketch of the main characters of the Book of Deacon series. And that was available to people who signed up for my newsletter uh, for a couple of months, for um, probably almost over almost a year. My primary newsletter perk was you got to download the full resolution copy of, of that thing. And a surprising number of people signed up specifically to get access to that piece of artwork. So there's a lot, of, I got a lot of value out of the art over the years uh, and uh, I will continue to commission art uh, well into the future. So, okay, that's pretty cool actually. Um, I wanna ask a little bit more about, you said you used them in Facebook posts. Now would you use like a piece of artwork from the series you were talking about in that Facebook post? Or I mean, just any piece of artwork that's been commissioned? There's a couple of different ways I'll do it. Uh, sometimes the Facebook post is literally like if, again, if I don't have any announcement to make, sometimes a Facebook post is literally, Hey, uh, here's the picture of that character you guys like, and that's it. It's just a thing to get a conversation going. Uh, if, uh, just as often, if I'm talking about the release of a new book and I don't have a cover yet, or I do, I've already shown the cover or anything else like that, I'll pick a character from the book that I have artwork for and share it. But I also recently started doing something, uh, where, I have a very good relate, as you might imagine, if I commission a lot of artwork, I have a very good relationship with an illustrator. Uh, and I had the illustrator do a stack of just sort of the types of posts you might have. Like, I'm looking for comments on this, or hey, here's an update, and here's some news, and this is a sale. And it's just a black and white illustration of one of my characters in a situation with a word that's associated with what I'm posting about. So, you know, I have a picture of one of my characters, three of my characters named Rill, uh, who I put up anytime I'm looking for comments. And it's got a big word comment. And it's got a picture of the character looking all excited. So I have a lot. I have a, I have a whole stack of, uh, of post-specific pictures that involve my characters. And I often get more comments on the image than the actual thing I'm trying to push. So they're very effective at getting the eye of, 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 of readers. And they're fun. Yeah, it's definitely easier to get a little interaction on Facebook if you use a picture or photo or something. And I'm, I usually just use some stock art stuff unless I happen to have a little extra from the cover art or something of a new thing. But I, I do love the idea of commissioning stuff. It's usually just a time thing for me. I have a hard time finding artists and then actually liking what they produce is kind of something I struggle with. I'll find somebody who does something awesome for somebody else's stories and then I get mine and I'm like, what, what happened? <laughs> so I, I guess I'm just hard to please. I, I'm sorry, artists out there. Um, before we get towards the end of the hour, I did want to ask about foreign rights since you mentioned that that's actually a pretty good earner for you. And I, I feel like a lot of indie authors feel that that's elusive, it's sort of like something you have to have an agent to go out and get foreign rights deals. And it's pretty rare that an agent will just take you on to, to go on for foreign rights deals. How did yours come about? And um, has it, it sounds like it's been worth any hassle you might have gone through with, uh, like, did you do IP lawyer or anything like that for your contracts? Um, yeah, well, so the way it came about was in, I've, you know, had a fairly long career at this point and I've had two points in my career where I had huge spikes in sales, um, for prolonged periods of time. And, uh, both of those times it put me on the radar of groups of people. The first time was in 2012 and uh, a Bulgarian publisher contacted me and wanted to do a Bulgarian, uh, uh, translation. And that, since that was the first time, that's when I did the lawyer thing. And I didn't take the contract they gave me and bring it to a lawyer to get it looked at. What I did was, and this is, I'm not advising this. This is what I did. It's a thing that can be done. Uh, I went to an IP lawyer, uh, or rather I called an IP lawyer. I'm, I'm, I'm local to, uh, to New York City. So there's a lot of uh, publishing folks in New York City. I, I called them up and I said, hey, listen, I'm going to be doing a, a potentially going to be doing foreign rights. Could you do me a favor and write me a boilerplate foreign rights contract? Just standard run of the mill, you know, average expectation for earnings and all that stuff. But I want a thing that represents, you know, an acceptable contract, a template. Uh, and he did so. And it was very reasonable. The guy worked with, uh, I, I wish I could remember his name, but at this point it's almost 10, you know, nine or 10 years ago that I worked with him. Uh, he gave me, you know, the contract. And then when I got the actual contract from the foreign, uh, the, the Bulgarian publisher, I went through and I sort of compared them point by point. 
okay, this is what this means because I know that because I talked to the guy. And so I understood all the terms and uh, it was similar enough uh, that the things I was told to watch out for weren't, weren't red flags and I went through with it. And that has been my policy going forward. Uh, I, comp- uh, I, I have a, a known example of a good contract. And if you're in places like SFWA, uh, they often have sort of example contracts you can do this with. So you even skip the lawyer thing that I did. Uh, so yeah, they contacted me. And the Bulgarian one, the experience was okay. Uh, I got paid, but I only got paid the one time. Um, either it has not earned back its, its uh, uh, advance or they have been unscrupulous. Uh, I tend to believe it hasn't earned back its advance. <laughs> um, but then in 2014... Unscrupulous is good too. I mean. Sure, yeah, whatever. <laughs> then, I'll, then I'll get the lawyers involved again. Um, but uh, then it happened again in 2014. I had a really good run on uh, um, uh, Barnes & Noble in 2014. And agents started to get interested and publishers started to get interested. And a German publisher got into contact with me. They're, I'll say their name because I've had a much better experience with them. That's Zaptos. Uh, who got in contact with me. And they were like, we really like your book. We'd like to do your trilogy. So same thing, compared contracts, uh, looked good. Uh, they were okay. I talk about things to watch out for. Ancillary rights was one of the things I learned. Ancillary rights means, you know, everything that's not specifically the permission to, to do the book. Ancillary, ancillary rights includes things like television rights and movie rights. So if you see a contract that says, you know, print, audio, and ancillary rights, don't sign it. You're telling them they're allowed to make a movie. Uh, so, but anyhow, I did their thing and it's definitely been worth it because first off, uh, it's stuck in the top 100 of the, of the German language, uh, uh, the German uh, Amazon store for months. It got their all-star bonus. Uh, it, was, it was fantastic. It's, it, it made back its advance in like the first three weeks. And then I was getting like the, the, the contracts that I was supposed to get paid once a quarter. I was getting monthly uh, payments because they didn't want to be carrying that level of balance uh, pending for me. Uh, it went well enough that they have since picked up the next couple of books in the series and they have expanded to translating it to French and Italian, I believe. Uh, so it's absolutely been worth it. That having been said, it wouldn't have been worth it to me to go and get them. This was super worth it because all I had to do was make sure I wasn't getting, you know, taken advantage of with the contract and then give them permission to, to, to do it. But uh, I, I hesitate to think the legwork it would take to, to make this happen without having someone come to me first. Yeah, your German publisher was actually forward thinking enough to put you in Kindle Unlimited and KDP Select, which I did not have that experience when oh, I, yeah. and I don't think mine, I never got any money from it. So I'm assuming as you are with the Bulgarian publisher that it just never made any money. So the answer to my original question is how you find these people is they find you if you sell a whole bunch of books. Yeah. Yeah, I, I uh, we have, I've been to many, uh, well, many, I've been to a few conferences. And frequently the subject of foreign rights comes up and it, there was a time back when like the gold rush was happening. When if you had a, 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 you know, a strong enough ebook sales, then there would be someone who would be more than happy to represent you for just foreign rights. And I'm sure they still exist, but that's not quite so easy to find anymore. So uh, I got lucky uh, and lucky I certainly was. And it's worth doing if you get lucky, but I cannot speak to how you would make it happen. Okay, so what do you think an author who has limited time or resources should focus on first? Like print, foreign translations of ebooks, the audiobooks, or writing the next book? Almost always, I feel like writing the next book is best. Uh, if you're just getting started, it's, we've spoken in uh, having a, a strong catalog is one of the best ways that you can guarantee you're going to have a career. More products equals more flexibility, equals more sell-through, equals a thousand other things. So writing your next book is always important. However, uh, even if it's not a huge earner, I really suggest print. Uh, Lindsay mentioned having a higher-priced item on your list really underscores the value of the lower-priced items. So you know, if you have a book that's $2.99 and, and a, a paperback that's $9.99, suddenly it seems like your book is on sale for $3 because, oh, well, there is a price that is higher than that. Plus, some people only buy paperback and paperback is good. So I like, once you know how to make it, there's not a lot of effort that goes into making a paperback. So I definitely think that's worth doing. Uh, For the other stuff, foreign rights is hard. Again, if they come to you, fantastic. If you have to go to them, maybe leave that for later in your career. Um, Audiobooks, they definitely have a bigger bang, but they also have bigger buck. Like 
uh, you can do uh, um, royalty sharing and stuff, but it's got it's it's a it's a it's a major decision to make. It gives you way less flexibility, and it requires exclusivity and a bunch of other things. And if the book goes big, then you're sharing royalties for the rest yeah. of forever. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I like to do all my stuff either traditionally published, which again happens if people are interested enough in your stuff. Uh, uh, almost all of my audiobooks became traditionally published because of that 2014 spike in sales. Um, but so if you have the resources, uh, absolutely have audiobooks made. Um, they will eventually pay themselves back. It might take a really long time. It might be instantaneous. But they're also a useful thing to have because it's a format that'll, that's popular and they say is gaining popularity. Uh, but it costs a lot of money. So I would put that low priority early on unless you, and this is a big unless, unless you feel as though you can produce it yourself. You probably can't produce it yourself. Like, like covers, uh, there's a lot of people who think that they can pull this off, but it will show side by side with a professionally published thing. So um, yeah. So again, early on starting off, write your next book. Uh, if you get good at formatting, do print for sure. And then everything else can sort of wait once you start making money and start making career things. And you can find um, print formatters who only charge like $25, you know? Oh, yeah. So yeah. it's super easy, yeah. super easy to get a print book. My biggest thing was audiobooks because I, I still haven't done any of my audiobooks. I've been approached, I get approached about once a month by audio, like narrators, you know? But I'm all that cash that, you know, my business makes goes to like, medical bills, you know, and having kids and emergency surgeries and, or, you know, keeping the business afloat during months when things aren't going as well, you know? And so I still haven't put a focus on audiobooks, and that's something I'm trying to rectify. I've actually chosen a narrator for my first series and I'm going to be bothering Lindsay later about her Kickstarter campaign to get her, uh, the, the crowdsourcing going because I, I have a hard time wanting to fork over the cash if I don't, I mean, if it's going to take a few years, you know, then. Yeah. And that's why, again, um, uh, like I have never shopped around for an audiobook publisher. I've published through two different audiobook publishers in the past, and I've been fairly happy with both of them. But I never haggled on an advance or anything like that because uh, I wouldn't have done audiobook. I've, again, self produced audiobooks twice. Jade is one of my books, and The, the Karen Apprentice is one of my books. I paid for myself. And, uh, one of them just finished paying itself back after five years and the other one uh, quite a while before it pays itself back. But uh, if even if you get a microscopic advance from a, an audiobook publisher, as long as they're doing good work, they're not just producing a crap product, um, that might be worthwhile for you if you just want to have audiobooks. So like whatever, you get a, an audiobook publisher who does good work, but is can only afford to give you like a $100 advance. You could almost certainly get a better advance from another place. But what they're really giving you is a, you know, a $7,000 discount on getting an audiobook. So it's something to consider, even if you're a little hesitant, as long as you do your, your homework on the company and know that they're on the up and up. Yeah, I've done a mix of doing it myself through ACX with the audiobooks, and then I have Podium Publishing has done quite a few of my series, and it's it's definitely my number two overall for earning. I, I don't make as much as some you know some authors I've seen have just really taken off, either through design or accident uh, via audio, and I'm always like, wow, I, I feel like I should be putting more effort into this and trying to do more rather than just like, well, it's for sale with the ebook. So you know, if you if you see it on Amazon and want it, you should get it. But I, I've had, you know, I, I've made pretty decent money, both with Podium and then doing it myself. I, I would actually hesitate to recommend somebody do that unless it's a book that's probably selling. I usually say if it's selling 500 copies a month, you're probably going to earn back pretty quickly when you do the audiobooks. If you're not selling very much of a book, uh, it is a pretty good investment. And I, I wouldn't assume it would earn back, honestly. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's like ebooks. If, if it's down in the way down in the rankings, nobody's going to find it. Um, but that's certainly up to you if you want to jump into that. I, I make money. I, I've done the backlist stuff traditionally through um, ACX. And um, last year I did my first series front list, you know, like as I was publishing the eBooks and I obviously made more on that. It's a little easier if you can get them out, like with book one, eBook one comes out at the same time as the paperback and the audiobook. That's your best shot for doing well with audio. And I did that one through ACX non-exclusive and through find away voices, which uh, someday we should be able to get them on the show. We had them on our last show. 
they're doing quite a bit. So they're definitely worth watching. If you go exclusive with ACX, it's a 40% royalty. Uh, if you go non-exclusive, it's 25%. So you have to decide if uh, you can potentially make that 15% or more elsewhere by not just being an Apple and Amazon and ACX basically or Audible. Um, I, I think it's probably about even for me. I, I actually have sold more on Find a Way than I thought I would. And uh, if you go that route, you have the option of setting the prices yourself, which you do not have on ACX. On Find a Way, I think I've got right now the first book in my Agents of the Crown five book series for 99 cents. And even though I, I don't even know most of the places where they sell it, they're, they're the ones that will get you on Kobo and Google Play. Um, I know that those two, but the rest of the places are like, oh, you know, there's some library sales and stuff. So I haven't promoted those books at all on those places, but I've still made some sales. So I will definitely be exploring that more in the future. I, I keep, uh, you know, keep doing the audiobooks because everybody says, you know, it's growing, it's growing, it's growing. And I, I've seen some of that. I, I hope to see more in the future. But um, do you, are you just with your ones you've produced yourself, Joe, on ACX? Now I know Find A Way has kind of just come on in this last year or so. Uh, yeah, I, the, the two that I produced myself, I am, as soon as I found out find a way voices was an option, I went to their site, I read their stuff and I decided to put my stuff on there. And I do, I also make more money than I would expect because I expected to make no money. Uh, and I make more than no money. But the other thing about find a way that's good, again, if you're not exclusive on ACX, you can immediately, even if you were produced through ACX, non-exclusive, you can put the exact same files up on find a way. Uh, there's no problem with that. Uh, if you produce it yourself, not through ACX, of course you can put it up on Findaway. And you can also produce through Findaway, although I've never done that. Uh, another thing about Findaway that's useful, uh, aside from being available in more places than the others, is Findaway, act, you say, you know, you can set your own price, which is super nice. You can also, they have monthly promotional signups. Like they, they legit, you can go and say, hey, I'm looking to do a price promo this month. And they'll sort of maintain a list of, of price promos. So... Yeah, find a way is so much easier to uh, promote in that it is possible to promote because we, again, on our previous podcast, the question of how you promote audiobooks was a big question because you had no control over price and you couldn't discount them. And find a way gives you options in both of those cases. So it's definitely worth doing if you haven't gone exclusive. And I have heard and cannot confirm that even if you did go exclusive, after a certain amount of time, you can, you can sort of uh, uh, change your mind on that. Uh, if you did not do profit share, if you didn't do revenue share, then you, you, you potentially have the possibility to alter your agreements even before the seven year contract is up. If you did do revenue share, tough luck, you're stuck. Likewise with find a way. If you do revenue share with find a way, then you're kind of stuck there too. I've uh, heard the same thing that people have successfully emailed ACX and said like, Hey, can I get, can I get it back and go non-exclusive uh, before, well before the seven years were up. Uh, I should add to the, the series I have with find a way is still in KU in ebook form. So it's actually that much more remarkable that people have found the ebooks or the audiobooks because the ebooks are not available in Google play and Kobo yet. Uh, that series will be coming out soon. And I don't know, we'll see maybe someday I'll be able to get a book bub or something uh, and it'll get a big boost. And we should, also mentioned that I have not uh, been invited to participate or anything, but BookBub has the Chirp service now. And I think pretty soon, if not already, you might be able to submit your audiobooks if you can lower the price and make it a deal, which again, you can do if it's through Findaway. I'm not sure how that works because I, with Amazon and uh, Apple, because I know Audible won't match the price you know, Amazon. <laughs> so it's still going to be like $19.99 or whatever on Amazon. And you know, not over there. I don't know. Yeah, that's a good point. I know Find Away Voices allows you to set books up at, for free, you know, and it'll be on iTunes or whatever they call themselves now <laughs> uh, for free, which is good. But I didn't know that about Amazon not price matching. That's kind of not forward thinking of them for a very forward thinking company. <laughs> okay, Joe, um, how do you keep up on all of your streams of revenue? So are there any services that you use, any systems that you follow on a regular basis to keep up and to know what you're making on different um, income sources? Uh, yeah, I, there's a thing called TrackerBox that I use. It's just a program. You download all of your different sales things and it digests them into a database. But also, as mentioned at the top of the hour, I, I worked IT for nine years. So I 
I have on more than one occasion written a, 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 my own Python scripts to write my own database to do my own stuff. That said, I don't do it very often. Uh, when when you've been at it long enough, you can sort of you can sort of get a, an idea of uh, how your stuff is is performing based upon a couple of sort of uh, just market indicators. So you end up with like whatever my my income is usually about equal on Amazon and non Amazon. So if I just keep track on the day to day on Amazon, it gives me a rough estimation of how I'm doing across the board. So whereas uh, I don't use any services to do this stuff, but I but I when I need to do a deep analysis of my sales, uh, I will use either my own database or something called TrackerBox. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a data guy, so I'm, I'm accustomed to that stuff. And at the end of the year is when I usually end up doing like, like the real deal analysis because I got to do your taxes anyway. So at the end of the year, I'll, I'll download all of the stuff that's available historically for that year and I'll process it and sort of look at the trends and things. Other than that, it's just the daily sales uh, indicators. Smashwords has daily sales, and of course, Amazon has daily sales. So day-to-day, I look at those as my indicators, and then monthly or annually, I either pull it in with my own database or use TrackerBox. Now, for those who don't know what TrackerBox is, where did you get it? How much does it cost? Is it like a yearly subscription? TrackerBox is a, is a purchasable product. It's not a service, so you only pay for it once. It's, it's Windows only. And uh, just if you just search for, I think it's just tracker box with no space, you'll find it. Um, yeah, I don't remember the, the name of the publisher. I bought it a while ago and I only use it twice a year. So I'm not 100% up, uh, up to date on, on uh, that information. All right. Well, I think that's about the end of our questions for you, Joe. We've been rambling for about an hour. You get to talk more on this episode. Did you enjoy that? Yeah. <laughs> it, it all balances out. All right. Well, do you guys, either of you have any final thoughts on diversifying income for our listeners before we wrap up? I think it's important. I mean, readers, you know, come from all sorts of places and you never know when one source of income will dry up. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I would, I, I, I feel comfortable in saying I probably wouldn't still be a, a self-published, a full-time self-published author if I hadn't diversified. There have been times where like the foreign rights thing comes in and it's like, I don't know, this, this year's been pretty weak. Oh, here's an extra $15,000. That's nice. You know, <laughs> like it's it, being, being diverse really has a way of, uh, it's like a capacitor for your finances. Like nothing is going to hit the entire market all at, well, I can't say nothing. Most things will not hit the entire market all at once. So if you can get a firm and a wide enough stance, you can weather an awful lot of volatility in, in separate areas. And uh, as we, you know, people should get the gist from what we've been talking about, even if you decide to be exclusive with Amazon uh, for eBooks so that you can be in KU, you can do all these other things. You can do print books and those can be anywhere. If you want to do find away voices for audiobooks, those can be anywhere. And like I said, I, I'm selling audiobooks even when the ebooks aren't available everywhere. And uh, of course, Patreon and Kickstarter are things you can check out too if that's of interest. So yeah, diversify, good stuff. <laughs> all right. Thank you everyone for listening. Uh, we hope you enjoyed the show. Please visit sixfigureauthors.com if you want to leave a comment or ask a question for a future show. And that's the number six. The number six. Somebody took it out of my notes here. <laughs> <laughs> sixfigureauthors.com, the number six. Hopefully one day we'll be popular enough that you can just throw that, any iteration of that in there and you'll get us. Thanks everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye.